And you are listening to WMNF Tampa, Sarasota Clearwater, Community Conscious Radio. Hi, I'm Mary Glennie. And I'm Arlene. Oop, let me put you on, Arlene. There you go. There you go. Thank you. And I'm Arlene Engelhart. And you are listening to From a Woman's Point of View. Well, it's wonderful to be back, isn't it, Mary? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, I, I really have been searching my thesaurus, uh, thesaurus for words, <laughs> and I don't know the words. Uh, you know, that uh, you realize that it's all in the heart. And I cannot tell you how much, uh, so much support I got dur- <laughs> during my very interesting absence from uh, this place and this, these microphones. I cannot tell you how much it really meant your support, contacting me, encouraging me, uh, hoping we'd be back soon, et cetera. It really, you know, I've always felt that WMNF is a family, a tribe, if you will. And, uh, you know, when one member needs help, uh, they all rally around, and it really was appreciated. And so I am thanking all of you from the bottom of my heart. And, uh, you know, I think that in these times, <laughs> you know, with COVID, and I feel that COVID, COVID really has been a harbinger for us. Uh, we actually, as bad as it's been, and I don't mean in any way to belittle the terrible number of deaths and the illnesses and the, and the long-term effects so many people have, they are really, really very serious. Uh, but it, it could have been so much worse. And I think it's really warning us, you know, that the climate is changing. We need to change. And I can tell you from my personal experience, you are up to it. We can. That life is so much more. And sometimes, you know, it takes difficult times to really bring out the best in you that you don't even know you have. And so I, for one, am really encouraged. Uh, I know we can do it, and we need to get through these times. We have just about despoiled nature. And nature, we never want to forget, does not need us. Uh, we need her desperately. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, thanks from the bottom of my heart. And Arlene, I think you have something to read. Yes, I do. And I also want to express my thanks to everyone <clears throat> that we've heard from. And also my thanks for this wonderful station being here. Uh, having spent three years out of Pacifica, it made me even more aware how important this station is not only to this community, but in the country and in the world. And we need to keep it up. It's important to expose people to the new kinds of music and the wonderful relaxation that the station offers to people through music. But the public affairs is a very, very important part of this station. And it's something that our listeners in this community and in many other places in the country and world have come to rely on that they don't get from other stations or in other communities. You know, Arlene, before you read that announcement, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, because actually, WMNF is one of the few truly community-supported radio stations, certainly in the Southeast and in the country. And if you will... I think it's really a role model, and I really think that many stations, you know, with the commercialism and with the takeover of very big media, 
and the ownership of media by very specific interests that aren't necessarily people's interests. It is critical that you can get an independent source of news and events. And it doesn't mean you have to agree to it, but if you have the data, if you have the research, then you can check it out for yourself. And whether you agree or disagree, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that you are exposed to the facts. And so WMNF really should be studied. It really, it is one of the few. And I think it's really important that we recognize this is truly a community-based, it's not corporate-based, we're not beholden to any corporate interests, and we have to watch what we say because we don't want to offend the big boss man. Uh, and this is really important. So congratulations to all of you out there. You're the ones that have made this and have kept this going. And it is so essential that we are aware that we've got an additional mission other than just our information. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, you weren't interrupting. That's exactly what I was talking about. And I can't say how much I mean it and how important I think it is. But again, supporting the station's mission as part of WMNF's mission calendar. We are paying special attention to mental health awareness in May. We know many listeners or their loved ones are struggling. If you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. The number is 211. That's 211. WMNF is here for you. Thanks for listening. You know, with mental health, you know, I remember my days in medical school and my total frustration at the medications that they you know, almost immediately went to and their side effects. And most of those actually are only meant to be used for a very short-term basis. Yet you've got people using them for years with expected serious <coughs> side effects. And I think when we see the plethora of problems we have and uh, the, the lack of any interest really in mental illness, and I look at NIH, and, you know, just having gone through the whole cancer regalia, so to speak, and all of the very different chemotherapeutic agents and all the research done and all the number of, of, of different chemicals that were suggested to me that this one does just a little bit different, this one does that. And I thought, you know, I thought there are so many other areas of our health that need attention. And I'm not saying that necessarily one goes to medications. I don't mean that at all. But there is not the kind of attention to mental health, uh, you know, which is such a very serious problem. Uh, that, you know, we really need to, to put some spurs in the saddle of NIH, the CDC, et cetera, because quite obviously, particularly with the stresses and the changes, which are so rapid and can happen, we're noticing what's happening in the Midwest, we're looking at the typhoons, we're all worried to death about our hurricane season, are we going to see above Category 5, you know, and I mean, so... You know, we've got to make our voices known, and there is nothing more important to me in the whole public health agenda than mental health. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. I've had too much time to think. <laughs> Go ahead, Arlene. Uh, well, I didn't have a lot else to say, but I just, again, want to express how glad we are to be back. Okay, and a big congratulations to the Lightning. <laughs> the Bolts are one of my favorite sports teams. And I'm telling you that that was a war between our Bolts and the Florida Panthers. Wow. And I thought they just looked so terrific last night. Vasilevsky is, is, 
his athleticism, his agility, he and Simone Biles, I put the two of them together, you know, with their incredible abilities with their bodies, and so we're so lucky to have them, but okay. Well, I am going to, I'm really excited because, uh, unfortunately, even though I've been gone, I find there are some problems that just remain and seem to get worse, and I do not really... Well, I do understand why there is such an effort to control women's lives. And what better way to control a woman's life than to control her body? And if you want to control her body, you want to mandate how and when and the number of children she has. Uh, and so I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite, uh, actually, guests, Jessica Mason Piclo. And uh, we will be talking about Mississippi but also the ramifications of that to Roe versus Wade. And I kind of feel like I've not been away because this is a topic we have covered uh, many times and we will continue to cover it because if a woman does not have control of her body, if she cannot have autonomy of that, she is not a full citizen. She cannot have a full life. So I'm going to put this music on by Nina Simone <laughs> and then uh, I will come back with Jessica Mason Piclo. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi God damn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi God damn Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? the guest I have, and that's the great, of course, Nina Simone, Mississippi. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, Jessica Mason Piclo, our Vice President of Law and Policy and the Courts for Rewire.News. If you're not familiar with that extraordinary website, website, please do become familiar with it because it just has so much information from so many vantage points. It is just, I'm constantly keeping up to date with it. So Jessica Mason Piclo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, you know, I know this morning that some Supreme Court decisions are coming down probably as we're speaking. So just quickly before we get into the Mississippi case, what are you particularly interested in today? 
Well, I am still waiting to see what the Supreme Court is going to do with the Affordable Care Act uh-huh. that it heard at the beginning of the fall. Um, and then also the city of Philadelphia versus Colton, which is a case that would allow religiously affiliated social service uh, entities to take taxpayer money but discriminate against LGBTQ families in doing so. Yeah, and the transgender, my word, there's probably mm-hmm. a war against these people. Yeah, there's definitely um, what is happening at the state's um, legislatures in terms of uh, really attempts to curtail healthcare access for transgender folks and then also just, you know, daily life for trans kids participate in sports and play on teams with their peers. Uh, the attacks that are happening at the state level um, are really alarming. Okay, Jessica, Mississippi, viability. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems... Well, actually, to me, this is kind of a, you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, I I really find the far right, you know, because, you know, so many people speculate, is this going to be the end of Roe versus Wade? Well, honestly, if it is the end of Roe versus Wade, what are these people going to do? I mean, this has really been such an important red meat for them. Uh, I, 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 are, are we in some kind of a a nibble game? I mean, am am I totally missing the picture here? Well, so it's an excellent question because really what this case, what the Supreme Court uh, taking this case represents is an is a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this decision will overturn Roe versus Wade. And so, what do I mean by that? Roe versus Wade says that before fetal viability, a state cannot ban abortion, and that's because the state power doesn't extend that far. If it did, it would overreach into an individual's personal constitutional privacy rights. So that's the balance between state power and individual constitutional rights that Roe versus Wade strikes and that Planned Parenthood versus Casey upholds. And it's that balance that is at issue in this Mississippi case. Because in this case, what the Supreme Court is going to answer is only one question, and that's can the state ever ban abortion before viability? They don't have to overturn Roe versus Wade to answer that question yet. They can modify Roe versus Wade. They can modify Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And if they do that, what it allows the evangelical political right to do is to continue to politically fundraise and campaign off of the evils of legal abortion while functionally making it impossible for patients to access the procedure itself. You know, Jessica, I, I, I talk to younger women. And, you know, they, they look upon this and, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty up on medications and what they can do and what's the situation. And so I guess I'm thinking about some of them, you know, which have had it up to their ears. But I'm also thinking about RBG and her begging us to kick it upstairs. And so what did she mean by that? Because it would seem to me that they can keep nibbling around this cheese, which is Roe versus Wade, forever. And so, and to me, you know, with all the problems we have in the world and the total necessity for all the energy and the kind of abilities that women have that, frankly, if they can't have autonomy of their body, they can't really be the the, the full participation that they want and need to be. uh, What can we do? I mean, that, that is an excellent question. I mean, this is really the ending for the religious right here. Um, we know since the Supreme Court recognized um, that a person's privacy right ex- 
extends to making decisions about when to parent and how to parent, that that has been the five-alarm fire for the religious right. Because what this does is allows women to participate fully in civic life on their own terms. And so I think in this time between the Supreme Court deciding to take this case and oral arguments and a decision, I mean, one of the things that I'm reminding folks when I go and talk about this case is we are still a year out from a conclusion here. You know, I could be on this program a year from now, and the Supreme Court will have likely not issued its decision in this case yet. So that is a lot of time for us to talk about what folks are really trying to do in this case. This isn't about an emotional appeal about babies, right? This is about keeping people out of the workforce. And if there's anything that this pandemic has made clear, it's that when the systems start to fail, they fail hardest and most quickly for women and women of color. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and, and you know, women love children. <laughs> they have shown that they can they, that they can balance. Uh, not, I mean, there's not enough support from you know the daycare centers that kind of support women need uh, to fully participate in society and also you know have their children. And that that's a huge area we have to work on. But women, it's not that women don't want children. They love their children. They have their children, and they handle it very well. Thank you. Uh, but you know if if they really cared that much, they would have the kind of daycare centers. They would kind of they would have the early school programs, the health programs, etc. Mm-hmm. That showed how much they they are they are supposedly so in love with children that it doesn't make any sense to me that they don't follow through at this end too. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's precisely it. I mean, and I think being able to call out that discrepancy really lays clear that hypocrisy because what we didn't see this week, for example, are Republicans who claim a pro-life position uniting around infrastructure plans that include funding for child care and after care programs that would allow working mothers back into the workplace, for example. What we didn't see is Republicans rallying around investments in anti-poverty programs that would allow people who are facing an unwanted pregnancy to decide to carry that to term and not just make a decision to terminate that pregnancy because they don't have the financial means to support another child. Those are all very real decisions that people make. We know that, you know, one in four women who have had an abortion, have had the, have had that procedure, are already parents, right? 67% of abortion patients are already parents by the time they have their procedure. And so this is a, this, it's a healthcare access issue, and Republicans are avoiding that very intentionally, and the Supreme Court taking up this case, while an enormous red flag on constitutional rights, is an opportunity for us to talk about what the real game plan here is. Well, you know, you brought up a, a very important point that I really hadn't thought that much about because to me, I've seen this race far more in the guise of control of women's bodies. And it puzzles me why they're so afraid of women. I mean, most of them are married. Many of them have daughters. Uh, and you kind of wonder what, <laughs> does this happen at home or are they the exceptions? Uh, but I hadn't really thought about it in terms of economy. And then it becomes very apparent that they really see a very closed society. They really see a very limited 
so to speak, on options, a limited on facilities, a limit, a limit on resources. And so if there are too many people competing for that, then they won't, they won't get the majority share or as much as they want. When in fact, COVID and everything else has shown that actually we live in a very open, constantly changing environment and that if we don't have the ability to understand newness when we see it and walk through new doors that were never there before, we are gonna, we're going to succumb to those kind of epidemics and not be able to respond to the exigencies of life. I mean, yeah, you know, that's, that's really about it because, you know, I think the finer point on um, your question is, you know, who do conservatives see as worthy of accessing those finite resources, right? Like, this is, this is ultimately what, they, what the conservative movement has done so well, which is wedge populations against each other under this idea that there's a scarcity of resources. And there's not a scarcity of resources. We know there's not. There's just a scarcity of political will towards equality. Well, and if you look at quotes of scarcity of resources, and you can look at it very fundamentally, like a mineral, you say, oh, there's only so much of it and it's only in this country. And you say, yeah, but have you heard of the fact that, that science is very easy today? They come up with a different mineral, a different combination of minerals that can work just as well, maybe better, that this is what it's about. There isn't just one way to do anything, and that the more ways you can do something, the better off you are, because many times then you can improve some of the other areas, and it's just you know, I think these people are afraid. I don't know if they're afraid of quotes competition or they're, they, they, they're just much more comfortable in the rigidities. Uh, but, you know, sooner or later, it, they're going to be just kind of pushed aside because they, they won't be able to stop the kind of flood that's going to come. It can come in many ways. And so, uh-huh. it, it, you know, it, there, there's such a rigidity here in this society, in this country, with our democracy that, you know, I think maybe, you know, having had to take time out whether I want to or not, I became so very much aware of it that you're kind of begging people, please. And luckily, I think the young people get it. You know, I think they're kind of looking and thinking, you know, these, I don't know what's wrong with some of these people. But still, that's too much to expect them to invent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're really seeing um, that rigidity, you know, I I think conservatives know this. This is why we're seeing um, a certain wing of the conservative party really rally around um, the big lie around the 2020 election and push these, you know, um, voter restrictions across the country. Um, You know, it is no coincidence that states that are the most heavily politically gerrymandered are the same places where it's the hardest for black and brown folks to vote, and it's also the hardest to access reproductive health care. Um, you know, these are the coincidences and the dots are connected because those are folks who are really working the system to keep themselves in power. And so, you know, um, voting and access to the ballot box is absolutely parallel to access to your doctor's office. Yeah, and you mentioned that. I mean, the number of states, like I think, what, 20, have absolutely laws, absolutely ready to go in effect in case Roe versus Wade, you know, is overturned. You know, 11 have trigger laws. I mean, that so many people in these states must just, 
That must be their career, totally figuring out what to do in case Roe is kicked out. Uh, I don't know if they've really, but as you said, they are suppressing voting and doing other things, that if it just keeps being nibbled away, that's probably just as good. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of demoralizing, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my colleague Amani Gani and I just released a podcast episode this week that really gives the backstory of the Mississippi 15-week ban that's before the Supreme Court, and it is no exaggeration to say that this is a decade-long campaign that got us here. And so if the political opposition is so unified um, on, you know, such a clear-to-them goal we need to be in opposition as unified in pushing back. And so far, progressives just have not been able to do that. Well, again, I'm thinking about RBG. And so I guess I'm thinking about kicking it upstairs. How, how Jessica, do we kick it upstairs? I mean, I know Elizabeth Warren has, you know, some legislation proposing okay. to it. And so, but to me, that's kind of like the Hyde Amendment. You know, we can't even okay. get rid of it. Uh, you know, and, that, and it is stuff like the Hyde Amendment, you know, mm-hmm. because I've had it up to my ears with these kind of rigid, you know, almost antediluvian approaches. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when to me... That, that there's a, such an urgency of us to really cooperate, you know, get along and, and go forward. Because I really think that there's, that, there's, that there's such a wonderful world that can be. But if we don't have the courage to step into it, uh, mm-hmm. then, then we're going to be stuck here. And that's not going to be very pleasant. And so how, how, yeah. how do we get RBG's kind of firm persistence? Take it upstairs. She would hate this answer. But the but honestly, it we uh, progressives have to unify around uh, structural reform of the federal courts um, because the reality is for the last twenty five years, Republicans have successfully broken the federal judiciary in a political way, and there is no legislative answer that the Trump federal courts will uphold. Um, so there's you know that like. One thing, you know, it's, it's weird to think about court expansion in the same breath as abortion rights, but progressives need to think about court expansion in the same breath as they think about workers' rights, as they think about abortion rights, as they think about climate justice. None of the legislative priorities that progressives care about will survive if they do not deal with the fact that Republicans have spent the last 20 years fixing the system to keep them in power. Well, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Biden and, you know, the number about the magic number nine. I'm thinking of the present Supreme Court, which, you know, you would know much more than I do. I know there have been some very conservative, regressive Supreme Courts. They can, they've come out with the Dred Scott decision and other decisions kind of like that. And so, uh, but the, the court we have now with Amy Coney Barrett, with Gorsuch, with, uh, you know, the, the beer man, <laughs> Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's... And, and this is a lifetime appointment. So do you think that, you know, that with uh, Franklin Roosevelt, he, he was going to expand the court and, it, so to speak, cowered them into it? I don't think he'd cower this court into anything. And no. so, so how, did, how, how, what do you suggest? Term limits or, or what? Um, well, no, we need at least 13 justices. You know, it used to be that we had the number of Supreme Court justices that matched the number of federal appellate 
uh, circuits that we had in this country. And so nine is not a fixed number of Supreme Court justices. The reason we have nine justices now is because we used to have nine circuit courts of appeals, and then we added several but we didn't add any corresponding Supreme Court seats. So I think a great place to start is just by adding seats to the court. Um, and we need to look at um, expanding the federal courts in general. And this isn't just a political reason. One of the things that Republicans have done in their quest to um, capture the federal courts is they've also starved the federal judiciary of resources. There is no reason if you are a plaintiff in a federal lawsuit that it should take you two years to have your case heard. But that's how long cases take now just to get into preliminary posture in the federal courts. And that's simply because they don't have any money. They're understaffed. They're under-resourced. Things just take a long time. So we are delaying access to justice. We just need to really do big structural change on our court system, and progressives will benefit if we do. And is this one of the reasons that, you know, you, you hear these appalling stories where people are picked up for, and they're, they're just assume that they have done this crime or this very minor offense, and yet they might spend months or even a couple of years in jail before their case even comes up, and it, and they and then they owe this huge price, you know, which if they can't pay, then it'll be on their record and they can be picked up for anything. I mean, is this kind of part of that whole show that it's just not... It's just not financed? I mean, that is definitely part of it. It is certainly worse at the state level. Like, I, a lot of those situations that you are um, referencing, those are folks who would be picked up, you know, by, by state and local authorities. You know, federal crimes are, are more serious. But even, you know, just standard business disputes, you know? I mean, we talk about this as impacting people's lives, but it also can be mundane things like, you know, fighting with your insurance company over a bill kind of thing. Like all of this, there are, there are just layers and layers of bureaucracy that exists because Republicans have starved our court systems of resources and folks are just doing the best that they can as workers in them. Um, but if we want progressive priorities to survive, whatever the progressive priority is, we, we have to deal with the court system. So you mean this has been deliberate? Uh, yeah, this is this is yeah, this isn't an accident. Wow! And so, if if the court, if particularly the, I'm going back to the federal courts because yeah. I I think that's really fascinating. Uh, that if they aren't financed, then you're going to get kind of uh, rubber stamp uh, justice. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we forget that there are human beings on you know filling all of these roles. And, um, you know, it, the reason it takes a long time to have a, court, a case heard in federal court is because there are some procedural um, reasons, you know, just we want to make sure that people, if it's an individual right, they have an opportunity to go through that constitutional due process. But if we're not in a constitutional posture, if we're talking just like a violation of federal of the federal statute, let's say a FACE Act violation, right? That's uh -huh. a federal law. Let's say, you know, the Department of Justice comes in and, and says you were blocking access to an abortion clinic, charging that into a first appearance and trial, you are looking at a long, long window of time, and that's simply because, you know, we just don't have the resources. And it, you know, it's like the entire federal court system is the DMV, Mary. That's the easiest way that I can describe it. 
That's funny because I have to work with a DMV not too long, not in the very near future, and I'm not. I'm kind of dreading it. Uh, but why? You know, it amazes me. This is probably a peculiar act, a question to ask you, but I'm not a lawyer. Is law really that powerful? I mean. I've always thought about good law, maybe I'm very naive, as being written in such a way that it's, that it's specific, but it's loose enough that it can give different interpretations to different outlooks with the possibility of compromise or growth. And so I've always looked upon as good law as specific, but not utterly rigid. And I was hoping that human beings could kind of work it out to make it fit what is culturally and socially kind of the norm of the times. Am I hopelessly naive in that? Well, so Elena Kagan, during her confirmation uh, hearing to the Supreme Court, uh, was asked a question about constitutional originalism. And this is something that comes up in uh, the federal courts all the time, right? What did the founders, you know, what's the original meaning of the Constitution? And, um, uh, you know, Elena Kagan, who's a centrist, you know, some folks think she's a progressive. I, I actually call her a centrist. Um, famously quipped, well, we're all originalists now. Um, and that really gets to the idea that it's kind of ludicrous to think what would folks over 200 years to ago have to say about uh, the FBI using drones for surveillance over remote properties. Right. Like that's, it's an absurd thought exercise that the legal profession engages in. And yet we still do it. And so I think that really gets to the nugget of your question, which is, shouldn't the law breathe and adjust to the times? And I, when we take it out of a political vacuum, most folks are rational and say, yes, of course, we wouldn't want a framework that understands transportation to only include horse and buggies to have to, you know, fit in airspace travel. That's just, it's ludicrous. It doesn't make sense. The law needs to evolve. But when we get into social structures around patriarchy, around class, around race, then folks' influence and bias really start to come through and that rationality falls by the wayside because what we see is folks being willing to use the law to keep themselves and their communities in power. Okay, you gave Elena Kagan's definition of originalism. I think that the one I'm most interested in, because I think she's the jewel right now uh, of the Supreme Court, Sotomayor, what yeah. does she say about originalism? Well, I mean, you know, she says basically what I said, which is why <laughs> we want to know why... What these folks are thinking, because it's not, it's, it's just not a good faith exercise in legal thought, in legal jurisprudence. Um, and, you know, she would say, probably, I don't want to put words in Justice Sotomayor's mouth, but that Justice Gorsuch, if we were looking for a conservative pathway, probably has a more appropriate approach, and he goes to textualism. So rather than thinking, what did the founders think, what does the text say? And that is the place to start, and that that should be a framework for conservative thinking and conservative um, analysis is, you know, the plain meaning of the text. Now, obviously, the plain meaning has all sorts of 
flags around what is subjective and who gets to and objective and who gets to decide that. But it is certainly out of the gate more intellectually honest, in my opinion, than originalism. Well, and, you know, the filibuster would have been anathema to our founders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet, there we are being bedoggled by this, you know. Uh, and I totally agree with Barack Obama. You know, it's been used to oppress people, not, you know, not, not to have discourse. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that... I, I don't know, because I, I kind of refuse to accept that it's the nature of human beings, that some people want to control. That's just human nature. I think that's something that's actually learned, and I think that it's, it, it's a cultural phenomenon. And I, I, just, I just don't buy into it, that you're always going to have people like you say, well, you know, you, you think of the history of colonialism and the suppression of people and how cleverly or pretty standard ways they do it. You know, they do with setting the rules and making sure the minorities were in power because they, they, they couldn't exist without you, the outsider, you know, supporting mm -hmm. them. And you thought, well, you know, that's just... Some people are meant to dominate. They're just more talented, et cetera. And I just think that's nonsense. I just think that's an excuse because they think, you know, maybe somewhere along the line, they think, well, we have to give some reasons why here we are thousands of miles away and yet we control what happened. And, uh, you know, that I, 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 just, I just don't buy into this innate superiority. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. But back to our federal courts, because I think you're really into something. Do we have 13 appeals courts? How many do we have? Yes. So, um, and then there are some specialty courts. So there's like a maritime court and, and tax court and things like that. So I do really think that the, you know, the first step for progressives here would be to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court. I don't care about, you know, term limits or not. Um, you know, I, those are things that, um, you know, I think lifetime appointments are generally just a bad idea, but it's, it's you know, not the detail that I think progressives wouldn't um, be well served focusing in on. The reality is, is we need more people. And there are advocacy groups who are out there that are really pushing on the quality and uh, of the candidates, too. You know, one of the things that Republicans during the Trump administration did very well in, um, from their perspective in their judicial nominees is they appointed a slew of very young, very radical, very uh -huh. white, and very male um, judges so that um, during the Trump administration, the federal courts not only became more conservative, but they became younger and they became whiter and less ideologically diverse. Um, and so one of the things that Democrats and progressives need to do, and to the Biden administration's credit, they have started this, but it is a long hill to climb, is looking for judicial candidates from places like public defender's offices, from legal aid clinics, places that serve underrepresented populations within the federal judiciary, because those are the people who actually appear before federal courts, right? We want to have folks who have experience representing indigent clients when we are talking about access to criminal justice reform. Like, that makes a difference. And that's one of the reasons why Sotomayor is such an excellent Supreme Court justice, is she has, even though she's a prosecutor by training, she has experience in this system, and you see it in her opinions. 
And tell me, uh, uh, Jessica, do we need more appeals courts? I mean, how yeah. how is an appeals court? Because it would seem to me it's important that a community has some representation there. And 13 for this huge country mm-hmm. doesn't seem like enough for me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, we should, the sheer volume of cases coming out of the state of California alone, for example, or the state of Texas, just given the number of people that live there, calls for us to be adding federal appeals courts. If we want our justice system to move efficiently, which is the question to ask, you know, because if you do not want to expand and reform the federal courts, then I think the assumption has to be that you are fine with the broken system of justice that we have. Wow. that, that it, You know, because I think so many people, you know, that you kind of you think, you think of courts as something separate, that if you've done something wrong or you have to go with something, whatever you need to do. And they, they, I don't think they see that as an integrative system that they have an input in and that they need to be involved in. And to me, that's really quite fascinating because quite obviously, uh, the far right has seen it as very important to pack those courts and to have very ideologically bent, which to me is, is, is a really bad situation for a judge to be so ideologically, you know, married to certain value system. I don't mean, I don't mean personal value systems, but I mean an ideological basis. To me, that's dangerous. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that, that, that people need to feel that they are part of the system and maybe they have felt excluded, but that they need to be part of it or else it's going to continue. And frankly, as, as, our system, as our whole society gets more diverse, it's going to get worse, not better. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and this is why I think the conversations around court reform and election reform need to be happening in the same breath. Because what you described is absolutely true with regard to how people feel disenfranchised in their civic life across the board. Wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> I, that's one thing I love to talk to you, Jessica, because I, <laughs> I, no, I know you're such a legal scholar. And I've, I really, I hope, the, I hope the listeners find this interesting because I think it's so important. Uh, but I always find it fascinating, uh, you know, that... Because, you know, that we would have chaos if we didn't have a system of laws, you know. But it's also important that we feel that we are involved in those laws and they are fair and just to everybody. Uh, and it's kind of a, it's not an easy mixture to make, but without a sense of what it's about, you don't have a chance. And so, mm-hmm. I, and I know you can handle that, and I, I really appreciate that. I, okay, well, we've wandered far. <laughs> <laughs> we always do. Well, well, that's fine. Is there any other area, because I know so much is happening right now, uh, and, and tell me, do you, th- honestly, the Affordable Care Act, I'm really worried about that, too. Uh, how, how do you think they would gut it by saying that they, they, they can't make it mandatory or what? Well, I think what, you know, one of the um, ways that the conservatives, and we've seen Justice Robert um, craft compromises um, when it comes to the Affordable Care Act um, before, several times, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, one of the things that, one of the outs that the conservatives on the court have in this particular case is that they can say that when Congress um, zeroed out the individual mandate because that's what this whole fight is about is you will recall that 
um, in the early stages of the Trump administration, Republicans got very excited to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And then they realized that repealing the Affordable Care Act was colossally politically unpopular and that that was something that they did not want to do. They did not want to pay the political price for repeal. So what they did instead was to zero out the tax penalty associated with the individual mandate. That launched a lawsuit that said, well, without the tax penalty, it's no longer a tax. And therefore, the entire Affordable Care Act must be declared unconstitutional. This is a nonsense argument and should be a non-starter. But here we are with the Supreme Court considering it. What the court could do that would give political that would give political cover to John Roberts is say, effectively, Congress screwed up when it zeroed out the tax uh, liability, but. Um, it doesn't make the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. What Congress needs to do is go back in and fix that penalty provision of it. Now, that would be chaos, because can you imagine Congress coming together and fixing anything with the Affordable Care Act right no, now, Mary? No, I, I right. can't imagine Precisely. coming together on anything, but go ahead. Precisely. Precisely. But what that kind of opinion would do would allow the Supreme Court to say, we didn't take a political opinion, uh, decision and strike the entire Affordable Care Act. We just kicked it back to Congress to have them fix the mess that they created. So that's where, you know, I see that case going. The one that I am really concerned about is Fulton, because it would give a green light to religious entities to take taxpayer dollars and then refuse service to LGBTQ families, to refuse service to um, folks of different faiths. You know, one of the issues in this Fulton case is that there was a Jewish family that was denied foster care placements because they were Jewish. And this is absolutely what the evangelicals are looking for. They want the taxpayer dollars and then also the ability to discriminate um, in the name of their faith. And the Supreme Court might let them do that. Well, you know, I have to say this has bothered me for quite a while. I mean, to me, ed public education is public education, and I think it's critical. And it's always bothered me that I don't care what the religious institution is, that they can dip into those funds. Uh, I feel that, that's an, that, that that really is not what public education is about. And it's mm -hmm. perfectly fine if they want to have, you know, their own, uh, public, their own education systems. That's fine. But I would expect them to pay for it. Not, not, not the rest of the public to pay for it. I, mm -hmm. I, I feel that's... And that's how the constitutional law around this area has been, right? Uh, historically, the Supreme Court and all the federal courts and, you know, we and the country have been in agreement that if you are a person of faith, you are free to exercise your faith in this country so long as that exercise does not harm third parties. And that means that we won't fund you for that, right? If you are a Catholic school... You are free to fire teachers if they are single and pregnant, but don't think that we will also give you taxpayer funding to do so. That used to be how the law worked. That is not how the law works anymore. Well, I guess people just, you know, have to have their opinions known. I mean, uh, <laughs> I know it's very controversial, and I can imagine <laughs> the, the, the phones ring, uh, you know, to say that. But I'm sorry, I've always believed that. And I, I, I think public education is critical. I mean, you cannot waste the resources of our children. And uh, But anyway. Okay, Jessica, we have covered the range. <laughs> is there any area that you particularly wanted to mention? Oh, no, we covered it all. <laughs> well, okay, Jessica, tell me, are you getting any skiing or snowboarding or anything like that in? 
Uh, no, hopefully, uh, you know, I'm hoping to take a day off tomorrow and do a little hiking and think some more about this case. Okay. Oh, that sounds really good because I know you're in God's country there. <laughs> uh, okay, Jessica, as always, and with Rewire.News, again, I repeat, it's just an extraordinary resource. And uh, Jessica is typical of the kind of minds that write, and it's really well worth your time. So thanks so much, Jessica. You do take care, okay? Thanks so much, as always. It's a pleasure. Uh-huh. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye. And, again, you're listening to WMNF Tampa, Sarasota Clearwater, Community Conscious Radio, and we just listened to Jessica Mason-Piclo. Don't you find her fascinating, Arlene? Yes, she is, and <clears throat> a wealth of knowledge. Um, she's been a great to, friend to this show and a great asset to the women and the people of this country now for many years. Well, and it, it just bothers me because it seems like that's a topic I have covered so much. But it's absolutely critical that, you know, I, I really mean it, that if women don't have autonomy of their bodies, uh, they, they are not full citizens. And so, anyway. Okay, well, do you have any announcements, Arlene? Well, yes, I do. But, you know, as you were saying, and I'm going back to what you and Jessica were discussing, et cetera, it feels like we're still at the place that we were when I came out of college and actually got into activism and paying attention to what was happening in the country and trying to play a role in expressing uh, my opinion and helping to support the groups that were advocating for the things that I supported. And somehow I expected that it would be much different by now a number of years later. Well, you never want to dismiss the roots of power. Uh, those roots go very deep. And uh, it's, it's not just a superficial surface thing. And it's not that the, the roots of people's oppression doesn't also go deep. But you have, you have, you have a much harder task. And so, but I agree, it's frustrating. It's frustrating how little progress has been made. Uh, but I can only beg particularly women to just go through that door you know do what you can do be what you can be dream what you dream and and because you can do it and just use your resources your intelligence and the last thing you want to do is prove you are equal to a man that isn't part of the formula never make it part of the formula and always look at the problem and solve it yourself, and you, you can do it. So, okay, yes. go ahead. And so, um, changing topics, I want to mention the U.S. Post Office. Oh, Lewis yes. Louis DeJoy is still Postmaster General, and he has <clears throat> come out with a 10-year plan which would increase rates for first-class mail, slow it down some Things that I've seen have said that it might be an average of five days for a first-class piece of mail to reach its destination in this country. Um, If you have comments on this or would like to make comments on it, and I was not able to find the date that would be the expiration of comments, but it's, as I remember hearing it originally, I think it was something like June 10th. In other words, it was in early June. Um, You can make comments by calling 1-800-ASK-USPS 
or in numbers that is 1-800-275-8777. You can also go on to, if you just do a search on U.S. Post Office Comments, It'll bring that up, give you that, those phone numbers, and it will also link to sites where you can make complaints against what the Joy is proposing in the Postal Service. So just search on U.S. Post Office comments. And again, you have been listening to WMNF Tampa, Sarasota Clearwater. This has been from a woman's point of view. Thank you so much for being there and listening. Uh, You are really the best. So let's put this on Ruthie Foster, Maya Angelou's great poem. Good to hear from her. Oh, well, that's all right. We'll go back to Everybody knows about Mississippi, goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi, goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? Try to say 